0: What's up, family? It's episode 124 of The Genius Life. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavier, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods and The Genius Life. I'm so excited for you to listen to this episode of the show, you guys, because I am in the zone. This is like one of my favorite topics to talk about. I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Benjamin Bickman, PhD, to the show. Dr. Bickman has earned his PhD in bioenergetics and was a postdoctoral fellow with the Duke National University of Singapore studying metabolic disorders. His professional focus as a scientist and professor is to better understand the origins and consequences of metabolic disorders, including obesity and diabetes, with a particular emphasis on the role of insulin. You may have heard the term, it's a hormone. We all... Start out making it. And uh, it's an important hormone. It's involved in everything from brain energy metabolism to fat storage to fat burning to uh, indirectly to, as you're going to learn, any number of chronic diseases. So this is going to be a masterclass. He really, Dr. Bickman really breaks it down and you're going to learn so many things. You're going to learn why we get fat. You're going to learn about the different, um, phenotypes of obesity. I mean, I learned that, you know, there are actually two types of obesity. There is uh, a hypertrophic phenotype of obesity and there is a hyperplastic. And I know that those are big words, but you're going to discover what those mean and why they are relevant to what's going on underneath the hood in your health. Um, You're also going to learn about insulin resistance, of course, what that really is, what causes it, uh, what you can do to reverse it. Um, we also talk about, uh, man, there's just so much, there's so much. We talk about what insulin does to the fat cell. We, you get to really kind of understand what fat cells do and why, um, they are not just inert storage sites. They're actually really relevant when it comes to inflammation and, um, and hormone secretion and so many other things. And then towards the end of the show, we talk about IGF-1, which is not something that we've talked about. Uh, we talked about previously on the show. IGF-1 is a super uh, important growth hormone. Um, and uh, it is. it often comes up in conversations around cancer. And I want to pick Dr. Pickman's brain about it. Um, a lot of uh, people sort of associate IGF-1 with meat consumption. I wanted to get Dr. Brickman's thoughts. This was a a really wonderful chat. And um, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. So I'm pumped for you to listen to it. I think this is going to be one of those chats, uh, one of those episodes of the show that you come back to again and again. Imagine that. Before we go there, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Perfect Keto. Perfect Keto makes a line of super helpful and incredibly high quality ketogenic uh, products, products designed to help you along in your ketogenic journey. If you happen to be on a ketogenic diet, if you aspire to one day be on a ketogenic diet, if you are trying to just cut sugar or carbs, they make um, incredible products that are uh, really all about helping you In that lifestyle, Uh, whether it is a keto collagen blend that incorporates grass fed pasture raised uh, collagen from cows that that have been grass fed with MCT oil uh, powder, which becomes converted to ketones by the liver. So it's a sort of very uh, instantly. Um, easily accessible fuel source to the brain, uh, to exogenous ketones, to um, ketogenic-friendly uh, protein bars that are going to satiate your hunger without knocking you out of ketosis. Super high-quality stuff that I know they've uh, tested very rigorously to make sure that they're, it's not going to budge your blood sugar at all. They make a number of incredible Products that you can check out, and if you want to uh, learn about anything that Perfect Keto has to offer, all you got to do is go to perfectketo.com/genius uh, and use promo code genius, and you're going to get to get twenty percent off of everything plus free shipping plus a free nut butter on orders of $80 or more. So if you go to perfectketo.com slash genius or use promo code genius, 20% off of everything plus free shipping plus a free nut butter on orders of $80 or more. And their nut butters are incredible, you guys. They also make keto cookies and yeah, I couldn't be a bigger fan of that company. Um, so check them out. This episode of the show is also sponsored by my good friends at... Paleo Valley. Paleo Valley make the best tasting beef sticks I've ever had. I'm not just saying that. Paleo Valley beef sticks have the perfect blend of spiciness and tartness which comes from the fact that they are fermented. Uh all of their all of the beef that they use come from cows that have been 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. So you know that they're going to be healthy and they just taste amazing. They're so convenient. I will frequently, if I'm, you know, taking a road trip or if I'm out and about, um, for a day of meetings, I will frequently pack my backpack, stuff my backpack with them. Um, they're just that tasty. They're, uh, they're really amazing. Like if you're a fan of beef jerky um, or if you grew up eating beef sticks like from the corner store like I did growing up in New York City, you're really going to appreciate these because they taste um, just as good, if not better, as you remember a good beef stick ta- tasting, but with all of the health benefits of 100% grass-fed beef. So if you want to get 15% off of anything in their online store, go to paleovalley.com max and you'll get 15% off Paleo Valley paleovalle com slash max. And you'll get to save 15% off of your entire order, baby. So check them out. All right, guys, we're seconds away from this chat with Benjamin Bickman. You're going to discover so much about the mechanics of chronic disease. I'm so excited for you. Um, he's a bona fide expert and very articulate. And yeah, again, I'm not just saying this, but this was one of my favorite chats that I've had. To date. So please listen to it through to the end. Share this episode of the show. That would mean the world to me. Before we dive in, though, I want to give a shout out to iTunes user OK Joe, who left this incredible review for the show um, on iTunes. Okay, Joe left us five stars and wrote, Awesome. One of my favorite podcasts. As someone with little to no knowledge of nutrition and an abundance of bad habits, this has been a great introduction to an alternative way of life. Thank you for making things so easy to understand. And thank you for bringing a variety of guests. There are days where I read the description of the episode and I think this doesn't apply to me, but end up loving it and the knowledge I come away with. Well, okay, Joe, I'm so happy that you feel that way. That means the world to me. Um, you know, I'm not doing this, uh, for me, I'm doing it for you. I'm doing it for me, but I'm also in no small way doing it because I want to help you live a more genius life. I want to, um, you know, I feel very blessed, honestly, that I have access to the people that I have access to and, it is just an amazing thing. And I want nothing more than to be able to share that access and the ability to have conversations with these people with you. And that was the whole reason why I launched this podcast. Um, So I'm so glad that you're picking up what I'm putting down. Uh It's just really special. And I'm just so grateful to all of you guys out there for listening week after week. New episodes go up every Wednesday, so thank you for staying subscribed and spreading the word about this show, as I know you do so diligently um, on social media. I love seeing you guys tag the show. We got amazing things coming. Join my newsletter at maxlugavir.com. Super easy to do, you can opt out anytime. Join my text message community by texting the word genius to 310 9401 Subscribe to my YouTube channel. Um, more and more of these episodes are going up on YouTube. And uh, yeah, just thank you guys so much for, for listening. And now without further ado, I'm excited to uh, to dive into this chat with Dr. Benjamin Bickman. Let's rock. Welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Max. I appreciate the invitation. I'm thrilled to be able to talk about all things metabolism.
0: I'm psyched. And I've followed you on Twitter for some time. And I always love the studies that you post. And uh, I feel like we're probably going to be pretty aligned Um <laughs> in terms of our overall sort of dietary philosophy, but, uh, but I would love to start with your background because you are a bona fide expert in the topic of uh, metabolism and insulin resistance, and you have a PhD after your name, um, and, uh, and I just think that's the coolest thing. So for my audience, why don't we start uh, by first, you know, allowing them to get to know you a little bit. What kinds of things do you, uh, do you study and, and why did you decide to study what you study?
1: Mhm yeah so that you brought up some of the salient points right there in the introduction i if i were to sum up uh, as succinctly as possible what i do it is to study energy use in the body in, in other words human metabolism and nutrient metabolism what does the body do um with this chemical energy from the food we eat and and how how does it um, turn it into cellular energy and what dictates that process. So there's a lot that goes into that, of course, um, a lot of nuance there and some fascinating aspects to it. but that's that's really kind of the best way to sum up my lab. I study human metabolism. And I came to this um, through just curiosity. as an undergraduate, I had it was so difficult for me to just identify a, a major, you know, an area of, of that I loved enough that I wanted to get a degree in that topic. And I just kind of kept, and I bounced around, I was in uh, civil engineering, and then I was in international relations, because I had I, lived overseas in Russia and thought that might be something fun to explore. And, um, and so I just sort of kept kind of hopping around. But the more I focused, the more I thought about what interested me the most, it was the human body, and. Uh, physiology, how, how the body, how different parts of the body interact and communicate with other parts of the body. And that is basically physiology. And, and so that was my, my, my graduate, my master's degree was exercise physiology, studying how the body adapts to exercise, how do the muscles get better, how do the heart and lungs get better. And, and then by the end of that master's degree, having learned so much about muscle function and exercise, I actually found that that didn't interest me anymore. And I was more interested in fat cells and fat tissue and obesity. So rather than wanting to focus on how the body adapts to exercise, I wanted to and then indeed did shift my focus to studying how the body adapts to fat cells that are growing. And then that was the area of research for my my dissertation. My Ph.D. work was studying obesity. And then same with my uh, postdoctoral fellowship with Duke Medical School. And then when I started my own lab 10 years ago, uh, ever since then, it has been more of the same, uh, just continuing to focus on human metabolism, especially in the context of obesity.
0: That's fascinating. Why, why had obesity uh, interested yeah. you at that point?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked that, actually, because it, it really, I can kind of point my finger to one moment where I had, uh, in the course of just being a, a diligent um, graduate student, I was trying to just really start reading more scientific manuscripts. As I tell my graduate students now, PhD and and, and master's students, to become a good science writer, you need to be a good science reader. You know, there's just this art of getting familiar with how how to write a scientific manuscript. So I just, in the process of reading a lot, I stumbled across this study that had been published just a few years earlier out of Harvard, where they found that fat cells were releasing these pro-inflammatory hormones. And that was mind-blowing to me on two accounts. One, that fat cells were releasing any hormones whatsoever. That indicated that fat tissue was an endocrine organ, like the pancreas or the thyroid gland, releasing hormones into the body. And second, it started to explain how too much fat could make a disease follow it and and that in fact that connection with inflammation was very much my dissertation and my postdoctoral fellowship how fat is linked to inflammation which is then driving insulin resistance
0: wow so fat so this revelation really that fat was not just an inert storage site but instead was this hormone secreting organ this like forgotten yes. organ that Is that ultimately is what set you on this path to try to figure out the connection between, you know, adiposity, obesity, um, and and chronic disease?
1: That's right. Yeah, and at the time, I thought I I thought I had it down. In fact, kind of like the paradigm I just outlined, which was a fat cell is getting big, it starts to promote inflammation, and then that is causing insulin resistance. And that paradigm is valid. But uh, absolutely valid. Uh, There's no question in my mind that the evidence supports that. But that's not the only avenue. There's a little more nuance, both players that come in the midst of that pathway and even players that are driving the beginning of it. You know, what's driving the fat cell to get that big? That's all that's all sort of that's all additional insight that I've been able to gain you know, since my postdoctoral fellowship where I thought I had this perfect paradigm that was flawless. And the paradigm still stands, but there is more involved than I originally thought.
0: Wow. So, I mean, uh, so, so I guess like, where should we begin? I mean, uh, I guess the question would be, so why do we get fat? And then yeah. to, to to go from there, um, you know, ultimately, like what what leads to insulin resistance, which is the focus of your wonderful new book, Why We Get Sick. But yeah, I mean, I, I guess getting fat would be the first step.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yes. I think that's a good way to explain it, actually. Uh, in fact, if we look across the whole body and, and we define someone clinically as as being insulin resistant the question is well where did it start now this is not there is no absolute answer but i'm going to present what i believe is the most justified answer based on the sum of all the data it starts at the fat cells usually probably and likely always i guess how's that for just sort of being uh, somewhat committal but not totally uh yeah i i would say it starts at the fat cells so as the fat cell, when, 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 we, when we start to get fat, our fat tissue can, go, can grow through two mechanisms. On one hand, it can grow through hypertrophy of each individual fat cell. So in other words, the fat cell number we have isn't changing, but each individual fat cell is getting bigger. That is hypertrophic growth. You know, just like a muscle is getting bigger, it's because the muscle is hypertrophied. Uh, that's, That's one way of fat cells getting big or fat tissue growing. You know, someone's getting fatter. One way is through hypertrophic fat growth. Second is when the fat cells themselves stay at these modest sizes. They don't particularly grow, but they proliferate. We get more and more fat cells. So the absolute number of fat cells has increased, but each individual fat cell still roughly the same dimensions it was before and these are very different sizes of fat cells a hypertrophic fat cell is is anywhere from four to five times bigger in size than the normal sized fat cells and then again we the only difference is as you have two people um, one growing fat through hypertrophy, one growing fat through hyperplasia, they both get fat and they both would gain, say, the exact same amount of fat. But the guy whose fat cells are hypertrophic, those are insulin-resistant fat cells. And briefly, as a fat cell is getting too big to this you know, dimension, you know, four to five times bigger than normal, it, it essentially reaches its limit. It, it can no longer get adequate – it's so big – that, that the parts of the cell like the nucleus and the organelles like the endoplasmic reticulum and the mitochondria, because fat cells have all those things in them. You just can't see them because the the, the the fat sac or what we call the lipid droplet is just so big. So essentially, a fat cell has gotten so big, it can no longer get adequate blood flow. And so it starts to attempt to recruit new blood cells, new blood vessels To grow into it, and part of the way it does that is by actually releasing these pro-inflammatory hormones. These pro-inflammatory hormones, some of them are involved in the growth of new blood vessels, and so it's trying to correct this problem. But as we continue to stimulate them to grow bigger and stay big, uh, it's it's a losing battle. It's a Sisyphean task of trying to correct a problem that we aren't letting it correct. But basically. The fat cell at that point starts to become resistant to insulin's signal. And that is a critical tangent. And in fact, almost I should have started with this. Insulin is essential to telling a fat cell to grow. In fact, I'll say that another way, insulin must be elevated over normal, like low fasting conditions, in order for a fat cell to grow. And so insulin is stimulating the growth of this fat cell, the fat cell has reached a maximum dimension, and basically tells insulin to shove off, I cannot listen to you anymore, I cannot grow anymore. And as it becomes insulin resistant, in addition to releasing pro-inflammatory proteins, it also starts leaking its own fat. Because insulin will normally tell a fat cell to keep all of its fat locked up tight and indeed only pull it in. So to kind of be net positive with regards to fat metabolism. When it starts to become insulin resistant, this fat cell is starting to leak fat. Now, it it could still be taking in a little, but insulin can no longer tell it to not Share its fat so the fat cell starts to leak its fat. So that is a combination, that's a wicked combination. A fat fat cell or a hypertrophic fat cell is leaking an inflammatory signal and free fatty acids, and those two come together to create a different type of fat that accumulates throughout the body called ceramides. And then you have ceramides accumulating in your liver, in your brain, in your muscles, and that is how a hypertrophic fat cell starts to spread its insulin resistance throughout the body. And all of this stands in contrast to hyperplastic fat tissue. When the cells can proliferate, because there are so many fat cells to kind of share the load of storing all this fat, they always maintain maintain a higher level of insulin sensitivity. They can continue to store the fat just like insulin is telling it to. And so in that case, paradoxically, you have a person who can get very fat and and indeed fatter than the person who's only growing through hypertrophic fat growth. They will reach a limit of their fat size. Uh, but in the hyperplastic fat growth, they can get morbidly obese. And in some instances, because the fat cells are still reasonably healthy, they actually are reasonably healthy. And we all know people like this, where they look like they should be in horrific health. And yet, Based on conventional medicine, their insulin is normal, their blood pressure is normal, their glucose is normal, their blood lipids are normal, and that's all because the fat cells are growing through this healthier way. In fact, Max, this phenomenon is so obvious that there's one powerful class of medication called thiazolidinediones or TZDs, and you can give an overweight type 2 diabetic a TZD And they become incredibly insulin sensitive very quickly because it forces their fat cells to start proliferating. It takes a hypertrophic fat cell and starts inducing this hyperplasia or this multiplication. And so once again, it's a paradox. Their, Their insulin resistance gets better because we fix the insulin resistance at the fat cells, but they start getting fatter. And that's why most people will stop taking the medication because they gain thirty pounds in six months and they say, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna keep doing this. It's it's not worth it and they stop taking their meds. So what? anyway, that's a primer on, on how, how, how the fat tissue is linked to insulin resistance.
0: That was, I mean, that was brilliant. And there's so much there that I want to unpack. Um, but so for for people who are, are, are obese primarily through this hyperplastic mechanism, um, mm-hmm. is this uh, a point of support then perhaps for like the healthy at any size like movement? Like are you saying that these people are actually metabolically healthy despite being potentially yeah. morbidly obese?
1: Yeah, so this... Uh this is, as, as you know, a, a bit of a charged subject, and I, I realize that I'm about to go on record. But but yeah, honest, frankly, based on the metabolic parameters that I consider important, like insulin and blood pressure and blood lipids, like triglycerides and HDL cholesterol, these are people that are actually probably going to pass every one of them. Now, there's clearly a reckoning. There is a price to pay, um, but, uh, but the fact is this is someone who is – who is getting by. They're, they're kind of whistling past the graveyard, um, if, if you will. And, and in fact, there's an interesting ethnic um, disparity here, or, or, or difference, I should say. When I did my postdoctoral research, it was actually in this beautiful tropical country called Singapore. Uh, Duke Medical School has a campus in Singapore, and they were recruiting metabolic scientists. Part of that focus was to explore the, the differences across ethnicities. For example— you could take a Chinese man or a European – a northern European man uh, and and you would follow them as they're both – they both start out lean, same body, fatness. And as they both start getting fatter, the Chinese man would start to experience the the health – negative health consequences of that fat far earlier than the man of northern European descent where, where the, the Chinese man, his fat cells are just genetically growing. They're more inclined – to grow through a hypertrophic mechanism, as opposed to the Northern European or kind of typical Caucasian, although there's always nuance there. Caucasian, of course, encompasses all kinds of ethnicities, but Northern European, his fat cells, his fat tissue is typically going to be more hyperplastic, although there are some dietary influences there as well, frankly, it's not just ethnics.
0: So, I mean, would this justify overweight people going to get some kind of like test to to determine whether or not they are... uh hypertrophic or hyperplastic. Yeah, yeah. That's a
1: great question. Yeah. That's a great question. You certainly could do that. Um, but you don't, you wouldn't need to, it would basically be, um, the person is overweight. Is their insulin high? Is their blood pressure high? If so, then done. You don't need to do some comparison of fat cell size. If the person has high insulin, uh, and, and even moderately and higher blood pressure, I consider – I keep mentioning those two because they just are so reflective of disordered metabolism or, or poor metabolic health. If you catch those two, you can just – you can be extremely confident that that is a hypertrophic fat growth rather than hyperplastic
0: Hey guys, I just want to share a clothing brand that I discovered recently that I am totally in love with. The brand is called Viore, and I first discovered them because my friends at Mind Pump were huge fans of the brand. Viore makes incredibly attractive active wear that is versatile, comfortable, designed to look great in everyday life outside of the gym, but also perfect for any workout. And one article that they make in particular that they sent me are the Men's Banks short, which is, you guys, this is the coolest thing. They are made from recycled plastic, plastic bottles it's just the dopest thing so i feel really good about wearing them because i feel like i'm doing something good for the environment Uh, but i could wear them to the gym and then i could spend the rest of the day in them which is just you know badass if you want to check out anything that viore um produces uh which i recommend that you do they are offering an exclusive discount to genius life listeners 20% off of your first purchase all you got to do to get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet is go to vioriclothing.com/max now listen to spell viori it's v u o r i clothing dot com slash max. And not only will you receive 20% off of your first purchase, but you'll get to enjoy free shipping on any US order over $75 and free return. So again, that's Viori clothing, V-U-O-R-I clothing.com slash max and discover the magical versatility of Viori clothing. Now back to the show with Dr. Bigman. Wow. Okay. So I want to get to, solution, to the solution to all this. Um, but before we, before, before we get to that, well, one last thing. So insulin, a lot of people think about insulin in one context, really, in that it allows glucose to enter the muscle mm-hmm. cell or mm-hmm. the liver cell. What, so, what, so insulin's role in the fat cell, because we know that fat cells don't store sugar, right? Yeah.
1: So what actually
0: right. is insulin doing to the fat cell? Like, w- <clears throat> what is the purpose of insulin if you, if you happen to be a fat cell?
1: Yeah, I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled you asked that. Yeah, so you're right. You're right. It is not fair to insulin to just lump it together with glucose. That really fails to acknowledge the thousands of other chemical reactions that insulin is involved with. And, And every cell in the body has an insulin receptor. Every single cell, red blood cells, white blood cells, all the different cells in the brain, the bones, the cartilage, you name it, they all have Insulin receptors and, and insulin will do different things at every different cell. At the fat cell, insulin uh, is promoting two processes to varying degrees, depending on the uh, the nutritional status, like other things the person's exposed to and genetics. But one, it will induce, it will activate something called lipogenesis, so the storage of lipid, uh, the creation and storage of lipid, I should say, and and that's what it does with carbohydrate, or, or I should say glucose, very very well it will induce not only the uptake of glucose into the fat cell and then insulin will tell the fat cell what to do with it and that that right there is such an important truth that is too often overlooked with insulin insulin tells the body what to do with the energy that it has energy that it's consuming or energy that it's storing energy that it's burning or even wasting all of this this balance of energy Insulin just has a chokehold on all of it. It controls what the body does with energy. So one thing to just get back on point, insulin induces lipogenesis, so the creation and storage of lipids as triglycerides in that big, what we call the lipid droplet in a fat cell. And then two, it can stimulate adipogenesis, which is the creation of new adipocytes. And typically, that is something that is, is over. At the end of puberty, so late teens in females, early 20s in males, when puberty is finally done, that is typically when we've reached our, our number. Our fat cell number is typically set at that point, but then, of course, there are people who can continue to surpass that, and insulin would be one of the drivers of that adipogenesis, whether it's through infancy, childhood, puberty, and then even beyond in adulthood in those people that grow Through hyperplastic fat growth. Now, the fact that most Americans are considered metabolically unhealthy is evidence that most people do suffer the consequences of fat. Even if they have some hyperplastic fat growth, there is obviously enough hypertrophic fat growth that they are having insulin resistance and all of the many related metabolic and beyond problems. Hmm.
0: What are the, what are the, um, like the, pers- what are the, wh- what's the breakdown? Like what percentage of, of overweight people are, uh, hyperplastic and what percentage uh, are, yeah. are hypertrophic?
1: Yeah. So I can only speculate because there is no, um, broad data on that where, where we've done adipose biopsies and then done hmm. what's called the, 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 histology to look at the fat cell size. But I can speculate, um, where, uh, to the point, uh, w- based on, available data, and it's not good. So a study published at the end of last year from the School of Public Health at uh, North Carolina, at UNC, they found that um, 88% of all US adults were metabolically unhealthy. And that included um, even, uh, I think it was a a third or a half of normal weight people even, but but the sum of all of it, normal weight and overweight, it was 88% of adults were considered metabolically unfit or unhealthy based on them having at least one of the five categories or, or one of the five factors involved in what what's called the metabolic syndrome. So they failed in one of these five. They had too big of waist circumference. Their blood pressure was too high. They had glucose that was too high or um dyslipidemia, high triglycerides and or, or low HDL so those were the last two high triglycerides low HDL so the person 88 percent of all. US adults failed one of those five things and and and, and I can't remember more of the statistics but it was uh, an you know very high number only slightly below that had two or more problems and insofar as the metabolic syndrome is, entirely connected to insulin resistance indeed it used to be called the insulin resistance syndrome and for reasons beyond me it was changed to metabolic syndrome maybe just because metabolic has such a lovely ring to it but uh so that makes me think that potentially up to 88 percent of u.s adults are far enough along the insulin resistance spectrum that it's being manifest as one of those five features of the metabolic syndrome
0: Man, so crazy! Twelve percent of people then are are yep. metabolically healthy. Wow, that, yep. that, that yep, is that's it. shocking. It's
1: sobering. it is sobering. It is. And we've done it to ourselves. You know, this is all happening in the midst of of well intentioned practitioners and and all all the the, the seemingly best advice.
0: So, Doctor Pickman, what's the solution? Is it just to eat less, move more?
1: That's mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. That's sure been the the dogmatic approach over the years. And and indeed, Max, I like that you say that because we have been saying it for decades and it's just not working. In fact, let me, let me just mention something I discuss when I talk about human obesity in the class that I teach to my undergraduates. I, I, I actually bring up this idea, this idea, like you just said, eat less, exercise more. I try to have my students realize the problem with that, um, and, and that is I, I do that by creating this this little fictitious scenario and I, I tell my students that they're all invited to my house to come for this this glorious delicious buffet I have the world's best chefs preparing the most delicious foods all the foods you can imagine and I tell the students I want you to come as hungry as possible and then I ask what would you do to make sure you came to my home to this delicious buffet, as hungry as possible. And invariably, these hundred clever young minds come to two conclusions, just like you said, eat less, exercise more. That is, they immediately see the problem. That is the advice we give someone to lose weight, but that is a perfect recipe to make sure someone is as hungry as possible. And in our environment of readily available foods, hunger always wins. So, no, I strongly, I feel strongly that eat less, exercise more is not the best advice. It is scrutinize the the quality or the type of calories you're eating and pay less regard to the number of calories and and basically for me it's it's i sum it up as simply as possible which is eat eat food that nourishes your body but doesn't spike your insulin if you can keep your insulin in control you will have what we could call a metabolic advantage
0: I love that. So, um, I definitely want to talk about the foods that, uh, that are least likely to spike your insulin. But, um, before we get to that, so what are some of the consequences of insulin resistance? Uh, you know, you, we've talked about, you know, insulin resistance as being a consequence of obesity, but what really is the problem with this invisible, uh, as, as you refer to it in, in your book condition, um, you know, it's not like you can feel when you're insulin resistant. So really what's, what's the harm there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. In fact, that's one of my missions, if you will, it is to help people appreciate just how prevalent insulin resistance is and how relevant it is because it has a hand in virtually every chronic disease. In fact, even I usually say every non-infectious disease, but even infectious, um, with COVID-19, but that's a bit of a tangent Yes, yeah, so insulin resistance um, really does play a direct causal role in almost every chronic disease. For ex- I mean, we could go almost top to bottom, and I'll, I'll be brief. Alzheimer's disease is considered uh, insulin resistance of the brain, where, where the brain can't pull in enough glucose to meet its energetic needs. Uh, in fact, the same thing happens in migraines, where if someone finds a way to either improve the insulin resistance which you can do very readily, or simply give the brain a fuel that is not insulin-dependent, such as ketones. It can fill that gap, and then the problem starts to go away. Um, uh, we see similar problems in, with, with blood pressure. Almost every instance of, of hypertension is a direct result of, of insulin resistance, and insulin is forcing the kidneys to retain more of the salts that it wants to excrete and retain more of the water that would have been excreted with these salts from our blood, from our plasma, and so blood, blood volume stays high and blood pressure stays high. The gonads are exquisitely sensitive to insulin resistance, where in females in particular, in ovaries, um, too much insulin, which is always accompanying insulin resistance, actually inhibits the ovaries' ability to make the proper amount of estrogens. And every estrogen... All of the estrogens were once androgens. They all came from testosterone, whether it's in, in, in testicles or in ovaries. The, all the estrogens that come from both of those gonads were once testosterone. And, and insulin s- slows down that process. It doesn't allow the gonads to convert as much of the testosterone into estrogens as it wants to. And so in the case of a female who's exquisitely sensitive and needs that big estrogen spike as part of the normal fertile menstrual cycle insulin stops that from happening and so insulin resistance is a direct cause of polycystic ovarian syndrome which is the most common form of female infertility and and in men insulin resistance is the most common cause of erectile dysfunction in fact there's a study that in the title it asks is insulin resistance the earliest sign the earliest sign of of erectile dysfunction so wow. i could keep going so insulin resistance has its hand in a in a shocking number of health problems and the reason i feel so strongly about this is that conventional medicine would with all the best intentions would look at each of these problems separately so you could have a patient sitting in the office and she might leave with a prescription for her PCOS a prescription for her um her insulin resistance and uh, like her diabetes and a prescription for her hypertension but unfortunately you know the tragedy there is each of those three drugs is simply treating a symptom of one problem. So it's like cutting down little worrying about branches and you're ignoring the tree that is growing the branches. Just chop the tree down, go right to the source, go right to the root. And in this case, you can address the root problem by addressing the insulin resistance. And and thankfully, you address that far more effectively through lifestyle than you do any drug.
0: Yeah. Is, is insulin resistance the problem? um, the result of chronic, uh, elevations of insulin via the foods that we're going to get into that, that's, that that spike insulin, or is it the result of a, you know, chronic, you know, persistently hypercaloric environment, you know, because, because when, when we're eating too much more calories than we're burning, we store fat, right? So is insulin resistance the result of whatever mixture of macronutrients we're consuming that, that happens to be over our, you know, our energy requirements for that day, or is it just the result of, you know, consuming too much sugar, too many processed refined grains and things Mm -hmm. like that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So at the risk of, Kind of copping out. It's most certainly a mix of those two things, but but your let me before I touch on the insulin, let me address your comment about hyper, the hypercaloric environment. That seems like something that is just so um, so obvious that if you are in a caloric excess that means you're going to get fatter that day or that week or that month but the, it, it, that is not necessarily the case uh, like i'd mentioned earlier if insulin is low someone has a metabolic advantage to, to you know to fighting obesity and that's through a couple mechanisms one when insulin is low the body has a significantly higher metabolic rate you're actually your energy expenditure just at rest doing nothing you know me and you talking uh, that that metabolic rate can swing up to 270 calories per day higher if you're eating meals that are keeping your insulin low, as opposed to eating meals that spike your insulin. And of course, carbohydrate is the main driver there. And so that that is a meaningful amount. You know, it's, uh, 270 calories a day. That's that's 15% more beyond some what what it would have been their their resting metabolic rate. So. Keeping insulin low can increase metabolic rate, allowing for a greater um, outlet of, of calories. And then second, if insulin is low for an extended period of time, and I don't mean that long, like 12 to 16 hours, the person has shifted their their metabolic requirements, their their metabolic fuel rather, And shifted away from what I say sugar burning or glucose, blood glucose, and they've gone to a higher state of fat burning because those are the two main fuels for the body. At any moment, we're burning a mix of glucose or fat, and insulin controls that. And when insulin has been low for about 16 hours, then the body's been in in such a state of fat burning that it actually is burning more fat than it needs – But the body can't help it because insulin isn't telling it to stop. Insulin is low, and so it's not stopping. And so it starts to shunt some of this, almost like an exhaust or a release valve. It's burning more fat than it needs to burn to meet our energetic needs. And it starts converting this fat into ketones. Well, one of the things that happens with ketones is that we start to It gets converted to a form of a ketone that is just eliminated from the body through our breath and through our urine. And what too few people appreciate is that every little ketone was a piece of fat that we either had to burn or we store. Now we've introduced this third option, which is wasting. We are simply eliminating these ketones from our body. And a ketone is has a caloric value. This is something comparable to about the caloric value of a glucose molecule. And we're just dumping it back into, into the universe, if you will, back into this big system of, of thermodynamics. So that is what I mean when I mentioned the metabolic advantage. So it's not quite as simple as just I know my caloric needs and I'm balancing them. Uh, It's it's pretty complicated. And so I think there's there's a problem trying to balance calories. So but 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 if someone is chronically eating a hypercaloric diet, that energy needs to be accounted for in some way. And and of course the body has the potential to store that. So but insulin must be elevated for that to happen. If you look at a type one diabetic before their insulin therapy, one of the key features is that this person is wasting away, they have no body fat on them. They are certainly losing energy in the form of glucose into their urine. But that does not account for the significantly higher metabolic rate too. And without insulin, you cannot make fat cells grow. And in in an alternative sort of way of describing that is if you have big fat cells and you want them to shrink, insulin must be low for that to happen. And so it's a mix. If, if we're looking at causes of insulin resistance in a long term, in a chronic situation, which is the context where you mentioned this, then I would say it's eating foods that are spiking insulin with a sufficient number of calories that we're storing them as well. And that does not have to be a significant Elevated amount of calories. It can even happen at a modest level. Now, having said all that, though, Max, let me just say insulin alone can cause insulin resistance, even in the absence of a hypercaloric diet. And we know this beyond any doubt, as it has been confirmed in humans. If you give healthy college aged males an infusion of insulin that is even in the range of normal levels, like so a physiological yet higher level of insulin but physiological it's something that we can eat ourselves to then within just a couple days they become demonstrably insulin resistant and this is not happening in the midst of this hypercaloric, or or of course certainly not chronic this is very acute and insulin does it and so if we translate this to the average person we can see the problem with our conventional dietary advice which is eat a high carb diet and eat six meals a day that is a wonderful way to make sure that insulin is essentially elevated every waking moment of the day and hyperinsulinemia or high elevated blood insulin is on its own a significant driver of insulin resistance.
0: Wow, so so eating foods around the clock that continually stimulate the hormone insulin, it's like you're just you're pounding those insulin receptors to yep. a point where they it's just like the boy who cried wolf essentially. They become numb to the signal that insulin presents.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, that's a perfect analogy. I, I say this when I'm describing this concept. It is a fundamental truth, a fundamental biological principle. Too much of a stimulus will result in a resistance to that stimulus. It happens throughout Nature in every organism, well, humans, especially as we indulge, if we're exposing our bodies to something, even something like a certain set of hormones like insulin and others, leptin included, the body will downgrade its sensitivity to that hormone in an effort to maintain some homeostasis.
0: Wow. So, I mean, if you can just briefly talk about the kinds of foods that stimulate insulin, but, you know, I've got a pretty savvy audience. And so um, I would, if you can also touch on some of the non-food, because your book, I mean, Why We Get Sick, it's such a great book. You talk about all these other not to, to, to you know, simplify it to the point of saying that, you know, it's just about food. Um, you know, I, th- I think that there's mm-hmm. so much more that you talk about, which is so great. So, if we can just kind of touch on some of those, uh, you know, aspects as well, that would be amazing.
1: Yes, yeah, some of the non insulin drivers, yes. you're saying, of insulin resistance. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So, I mentioned inflammation earlier, and that is also something that on its own, And and very acutely, very rapidly can drive insulin resistance. And that is relevant in the – this is particularly relevant in people and obvious in people with autoimmune diseases. So there was a study published looking at people with rheumatoid arthritis and as anyone with the disease or knows someone with the disease – We're aware of the fact that like many autoimmune diseases, it sort of ebbs and flows. There are kind of active times and passive times or quiet times when the auto – when the immunity is sort of settled down and then it will spike and be active and then it settles down again. During those more inflammatory times, during the active phases, we can detect a change and an increase in insulin resistance that starts to ebb. And, and you know, reduce as the as the autoimmunity starts to settle down again. So we can track the insulin resistance quite well with these inflammatory um, autoimmune diseases. <clears throat> but the same thing happens even in infections. When the body is experiencing an infection, it starts to become insulin resistant. Now. It's tempting to speculate on why the body does that. You know, why was it designed to become insulin resistant in the midst of an infection? And it could be that by becoming insulin resistant, it's not allowing tissues like the muscle or even the fat cells to pull in as much of the glucose. And it keeps the glucose in the blood so that the immune cells can rely more heavily on that glucose to fuel the fight. Now, unfortunately – as glucose levels remain elevated chronically, like in the case of type two diabetes, you actually start feeding the infectious agent. And that that could be part of the problem, even with COVID-19, and certainly uh, non-viral bacterial infections, uh, the infectious agent, so the bacteria or the viral infected cell, it is experiencing such a, it's experiencing such a, a rapid activity. Its metabolic rate is so high that it begins to, like a cancer cell, preferentially use glucose. So if you have someone who's hyperglycemic chronically like type 2 diabetes, and, and this could be why it is such a prominent risk factor for COVID-19 lethality, you are giving the infection the very fuel that it's just asking for. It's swimming in a sea of fuel to, uh, well to, to drive the infection. So, but that was a tangent. I'm sorry, you asked about causes of insulin resistance. Inflammation is one, and then stress is the other main one, I guess, for the sake of time that I'd mention. Um, the, the main stress related hormones are cortisol and epinephrine, and those two hormones are direct insulin antagonists. They directly fight what insulin is trying to do, and that is vo- very obviously. Um, the case when it comes to trying to balance blood glucose levels as we mentioned one of insulin's main effects is to lower blood glucose well cortisol and epinephrine are trying to increase blood glucose and so there becomes this kind of fight over glucose that ends up well making insulin have to work harder and be higher than before and that is insulin resistance so i would say the three main causes of insulin resistance are is hyperinsulinemia chronic
0: stress and chronic inflammation. Wow. Yeah, the chronic stress thing is, I mean, it could, because cortisol, it's sort of, you know, it's been co-opted in the modern world by chronic stress and really, I mean, it's an adaptation that was initially meant to keep us out of harm's way. So yes. you know, when you're stressed out, cortisol is, you know, along with other hormones helping to liberate all these stored fuels, glucose being one of them. Um, And uh, and so it's just it's just fascinating that psychological stress today could lead to those same problems and to have them become maladaptive to the point of, you know, causing a person to develop insulin resistance.
1: Yeah, excellent. Well said. In fact, this is even something that happens with sleep deprivation. And you look at um, our our terrible sleep habits in, in today's world. Even one night of, of bad sleep can result in an in, in insulin resistance in the next day. Now, thankfully, it's it's reversible very readily, of course. That's not chronic insulin resistance. But you can see that if someone continues to have one night after another of poor sleep, that, that – does result. That is stressful in the body and that does drive insulin resistant. So
0: catering to all these different things, you know, cutting out the foods that are going to cause hyperinsulinemia, you know, and you're, you're, you know, people can pick up your book to, to really do a deep dive, but I mean, essentially these are, you know, products with added sugar, you know, refined grain products, things like that by sleeping better, by de-stressing. I mean, can we actually, if we are insulin resistant, can we reverse? This process, is there evidence of that, that we can reverse insulin resistance?
1: Oh, yeah. In fact, it is it is rapid. Uh, a study based out of um, at Duke, um, my, a friend there, a physician named Dr. Eric Westman, he noted, he reported this in studies that when they will have a type 2 diabetic who is is taking insulin even, which I think is the worst thing to give a type 2 diabetic, but that's a tangent. So this person is so insulin resistant that they need, they're giving themselves external insulin like insulin injections in order to lower their blood glucose and when they start to scrutinize the quality of their diet like you said specifically um, controlling their carbohydrates which is which is what I consider absolutely step number one in in, in reversing insulin resistance they control their carbohydrates they find that they they become so insulin sensitive so quickly they have to stop their insulin injections, they, they have to half the dose within a day, and then within about a week or so, they stop taking the insulin altogether. Their they're, they're inherent endogenous, they're, the amount of insulin they're making, is now enough to put the body back into, uh, back into a normal range. So insulin resistance can start to reverse like really immediately. I would say within a day, the person can have substantial improvements in insulin resistance. And typically, within weeks to just a few months, it can be gone. Entirely,
0: that's amazing. And what are some labs that that uh, really help paint a picture about a person's uh, insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity or, or resistance mm-hmm. for that matter?
1: Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So the easiest way, I and mean, there are some there are some complicated um, tests which you really can't even do clinically. They're just almost purely academic, and so I won't mention those just because the average person can get no benefit from them, but. I would say the person needs to get their insulin measured. And that might seem obvious. They might say, okay, easy, done. I'll go do that on my next blood test. Uh, a person may be surprised and disappointed at the resistance they get from conventional medicine to get their insulin measured. Now, thankfully, it's it's happening more and more um, as, as even insurance providers are kind of waking up to the relevance of insulin. And I know this um, explicitly, as I've had conversations, it's one of the largest health providers in, in the world. Um, and most certainly here in the US, they are very much warming up to this idea of measuring insulin. So a person needs to just get their insulin measured. And and my range is the person wants to be at six or lower micro units per mil. If a person's insulin is six or lower micro units per mil, then they are in great shape if it is up to around 15 or 16, then they're okay. And then, you know, but but not great, but it's it's in, in a kind of a, a, a yellow light range. And then if it's above 17 or so, I consider that absolute red light, you've really gotta um, step things up, step it up and start making some changes. Now, anyone listening to this also, they can also find out something called their HOMA score. And the HOMA score is this mix of insulin and glucose. So if it, you, we, always get, we always get our glucose levels. Um, that's, that's something that we're going to find on every single blood test that we get done. So if a person can get their insulin in micro units per mil and their glucose levels, which is conventionally milligrams per deciliter in the US, they just take the glucose number, times it by the insulin number, and then divide it by 405. So insulin times glucose divided by 405. And if that number is less than 1.5, then beauty, they're doing great. If it's if well if it's anything above that, then that, that's a problem. You're getting closer and closer to type 2 diabetes along the spectrum of insulin resistance. So 1.5 and lower for a HOMA score. And if anyone wants to look it up, it's it's H O M A. It's just an acronym. Um, and they can see that formula again if they forgot what I said.
0: I'm just curious. You mentioned when checking your insulin levels. That uh, what is the what is like the typical reference range for healthy insulin yeah. levels?
1: Yeah. So th- that's what a great question. Because insulin has been really overlooked for so long, there is no consensus. You can find, you can look and look, and I have, and you will not find a consistent number like you can with glucose. You know, everyone will just tell you. A glucose level above 126, well, that's type 2 diabetes. A glucose level above 110, that's prediabetes. And yet, and yet where did we come up with those? That those are pretty arbitrary cutoffs, but at least there are cutoffs that people can point to. With insulin, there is no consensus. And so the levels that I mentioned, which is you know, six being my optimal cutoff, um, that is the gospel of insulin according to Ben Bickman. But I base that on available human data. Which is if you look at people who have no hint, like cultures that, that don't eat a Western diet and have no hint of, of metabolic disorders, their average insulin is four micro units per mill. And then you look at the average American. Remember, that's not a good thing. Where the average American has an, uh, they're metabolically unfit. There, the average level in the U.S. is nine microunits per mill. And so my recommendation is splitting that difference, and six ends up being a nice number. Now, what's interesting as you look across the world in different cultures, it's it's always tempting to say the U.S. is the worst. You know, un- unfortunately, I consider the United States the greatest country on the planet, and yet. I'm not sure you could find a a population of people who hate their country as much as you could find people in the U.S., including this sort of self-loathing metabolically where we think we're the worst. and In fact, we're far from it. Um, You look at fasting insulin levels in the average adult in India, like uh, in in, in the main cities in India, and their fasting insulin is almost double what it is for the average American and and indeed Indian adults – in India in general, they are experiencing diabetes at just phenomenal rates that are, that are rivaling and, and soon to pass the U.S. undoubtedly –
0: Wow. That's very sad. Um, I want to switch. We don't have that much time left. Uh, I want to be respectful of your time, but I want to switch gears a little bit. I, before we started rolling, um, I emailed you to see if we could talk a little bit about IGF one, which is related to insulin. Um, for those who are unfamiliar with the acronym, it's insulin like growth factor one. It's a topic that I've become very interested in. And I was wondering if we could just talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, you bet. Yeah, so IGF1 is it has some strong similarities with insulin and indeed I would almost say some redundancies where some of the same processes that insulin is activating IGF1 will also activate. Now, it can have some distinct effects as well, like it isn't inducing glucose uptake for example like insulin does, but what they have in common is that they want they signal they signal anabolic reactions. They tell a cell to make molecules and and even potentially grow and get bigger. and And igF1 and insulin should also be a part of this because of that effect that igF-1 has on telling a cell to grow, uh, it in stimulating growth, it has, it is strongly implicated in states like, um, cancer, you know, stimulating the growth of a cancer cell, uh, stimulating the growth of the cancer cells, you know, to proliferate and to grow and to continue to grow. And and, and indeed, that is cancer. Cancer is growth. And IGF-1 stimulates growth. Because um, IGF-1 and insulin, coincidentally, also inhibit processes in a cell that help a cell stay young. You know, I say that with air quotes, you know, this process known as autophagy, which is where a cell can regenerate different parts of itself, its different organelles, and kind of keep things running well, like keeping young, if you will, keeping the cell young. IGF-1 has also been implicated in in aging. So we have these two problems, cancer and aging, that everyone's afraid of. And that that has really pointed a finger at some of these so-called growth or anabolic pathways that IGF-1 can activate. And, and the main character there is some, a protein called mTOR. Typically, if someone is afraid of IGF-1, it's be, and they're often invoking um, mTOR and expressing a fear of what mTOR is doing, like promoting growth and, and inhibiting autophagy. Um, There is some – I appreciate the the perspective when when that conversation comes up and and a fear of IGF-1 in aging or cancer. But I think that it is sometimes – as much as I respect it and acknowledge the data that support that, I sometimes wince when I hear the practical takeaways. So someone would be expressing a fear of IGF-1 and mTOR and they would say – and that is the reason you should avoid protein. You know, that's how they would kind of sum that up. And I can't help but hear that conclusion and, and like I said, wince and, and sort of wish there had been an alternative conclusion, which is, and that is why you shouldn't eat insulin spiking foods. Insulin can increase IGF-1 and they have a lot of redundancies, even with their activation, where they can sort of cross react. And... Insulin, at the level of various cells, can spike um, mTOR more than than protein will uh, uh, in stimulating those IGF-1-related pathways. Mm. So to me, um, if someone is afraid of the long-term effects of increasing IGF-1, and I think long-term, if it's chronically activated, that is a problem, then I think they should scrutinize carbohydrates – far more than protein because protein is something we need and while protein would activate IGF-1 and mTOR, part of the benefit there is that it's telling cells like the muscle what to do with the amino acids that just came in. So protein is providing amino acids to, say, the muscle and other cells as well, of course, and it's telling the cells, hey, pull in these amino acids and make proteins from them. But in the case of insulin, you're spiking those growth pathways and IGF one from from if you've if you've spiked glucose. Now you're activating those same growth pathways, but it's not for the sake of building proteins. It's just for the sake of growing and pulling in energy. And and so I think I guess to sum that up, uh, I, I appreciate the, the kind of fear or, or wary respect that some people have with IGF one. I just think it's sometimes applied erroneously um, where it leads to a fear of protein and I don't think that's justified you need to spike IGF-1 and those mTOR those growth pathways if you ever hope to maintain muscle mass and bone mass as we age and at the risk of kind of going on a tangent, this is even borne out in human data At the age, after the age of 65 we find that the people who eat the least amount of protein are the, have the highest mortality they are the most frail and in contrast, the highest protein eaters over the age of 65 are the longest lived. They have the lowest mortality. So anyway, Max, I certainly took that maybe in a direction you didn't fully intend. I respect IGF-1 and its role in this, in disease and, and aging. I just think that we need to look at it the right way, which is – Like I kind of said earlier with insulin, and I say it again with IGF-1, we don't want that to be chronically turned on because of our chronic consumption of glucose spiking, insulin spiking, IGF-1 spiking foods.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, you you took it to the place that I was hoping that you would take it because, you know, it's it's sort of a... I, I agree with you. I mean, IGF one it's it's important for and and you know growth signaling in the body important for for the the growth and maintenance of muscle mass. Also important for neurogenesis in the brain. Yes. Yep,
1: that's right.
0: Um, as well, uh, but the, the it's the dietary connection for me and the relationship that you know that protein has with IGF one and whether that is whether or not that's distinct from. You know, insulin signaling pathways in the body uh, has been has been like a que- a question mark for me. You know, for somebody, uh, for example, with a history, you know, maybe a family history of breast cancer, which we know is one of the one of the types of cancer that's sensitive to IGF one. Like, what would be sort of the dietary recommendation for that person? Do you have any like yeah. thoughts on that?
1: Yeah, I, I sure do. Yeah, in fact at the risk of I, I, someone listening will chuckle cause they'll see, boy, they'll, they'll, say to themselves, boy, Ben Bickman sure has a theme here. Um, and, and here's the nail and I have a hammer, so I keep hitting it. I would say in the case of breast cancer, as much as there may be higher IGF one receptor, um, expression and activity, we know that breast tumors on average will have seven times more insulin receptors. And so in the case of, of, of insulin and even IGF one, uh, when you look at the, a high-carbohydrate diet, you, are, you, are, you have a, a particularly vicious recipe there when it comes to, say, breast cancer, where you are spiking the proteins, IGF-1 and insulin, that are stimulating growth of the tumor, and you are allowing that, f- that cell to grow particularly well by fueling it with all the glucose it wants because there is no instance of a human tumor that uses anything but glucose for fuel uh, with regards to the main nutrients. It doesn't use fat for fuel. It doesn't use ketones for fuel. Cancers use glucose, in fact, about 200 times more than the average cell does. So I would say scrutinize the one macronutrient that is providing fuel for the cancer. And coincidentally, it is the one macronutrient that humans have no biological need for. As controversial as it sounds, and I'm not recommending people – make a dietary change based on this, but humans have no biological need for carbohydrates. We can survive without even a speck of carbohydrate. And again, I'm not saying we should do it, but it is fact with human um, physiology and human biology. But so why focus? Why have that be the basis of a diet? The one macronutrient that is both non-essential and has the largest effect on insulin, that is the one that you should control. I'm not saying avoid completely, but it is the one you should be careful with and, and scrutinize more heavily.
0: Yeah. I uh I couldn't agree more. And so then so the recommendation for meat just uh to close the loop on that for um in in your book you say that you know we should prioritize protein, which generally is something that I would that I would completely completely agree with. Uh is there a way to you know, is there sort of a lifestyle that we should adopt that might ensure that whatever you know growth factors we're stimulating with with the consumption of meat, um, and you know dietary protein, just you know more generally wherever that wherever that happens to come from, um, is being put towards uh you know benefit, you know good use in the body.
1: Yeah that that's a that's a great question, um, and, and I I would say that to me. The best way to eat protein is to not eat it with the carbohydrate. Um, if if the, the, the insulin effect and the stimulation of anabolic pathways that you do get from just protein alone, let that be from protein alone. And, and I say that partly based on just our ancestral eating. There is no – well, there's one. There is one – meaningful source of protein that also comes with a meaningful source of carbohydrate. And that is milk Hmm. and and, and milk is high in all three macronutrients, which makes it the perfect cocktail to help a little mammal grow as quickly as possible. So I consider milk uh, the perfect food for growth. Um, But every other of the best protein sources, in fact, after dairy, not after dairy, in addition to dairy, that is going to be eggs and meat they don't come with any carbohydrate it is protein and fat and people can say well what about protein from soy and protein from peas no in nature that th- that you know that doesn't happen you don't get protein from those things those seeds or, or you know those well seeds i guess for lack of a better word mm-hmm. and, uh, so eat protein the way nature intended it to be eaten which is with fat and uh, not with not with carbohydrate because that is a combination that spikes insulin substantially that you take the mild effect the mild insulin spike you get from protein which is good and natural and igf1 is in fact uh, going to be part of that response as well but when you when you stack that with carbohydrate you amplify that insulin spike significantly and and max at the risk of kind of uh, another tangent um there's a lot of people who will will exercise and they'll say, well, I'm going to eat my carbohydrate and I'm going to – I'm, I'm going to eat my protein and then I'm going to get some carbohydrate too to help spike my insulin to make it more anabolic. And In fact, the data don't play out like that. You can – there are these studies that actually pull muscle biopsies and look at something called muscle protein synthesis and if you – what I say, if you stack protein and carbohydrate like pure glucose, it, it does not um, – Result in an additive any significant effect beyond the protein alone. It does not induce any additional muscle protein synthesis. In contrast, if you stack fat and protein in a one to one, um, which was done in a in a clinical study then you have actually amplified muscle protein synthesis beyond the protein alone. So protein alone has an effect on muscle protein synthesis. And then if you have protein and fat together, it is one significant step even beyond the protein alone. It's almost like nature knows what it's doing when it has protein and fat come together in the best sources. And and frankly, Max, at the risk of kind of self-promotion here – That's what I did with a couple of my brothers. We made a protein shake that actually takes advantage of that fact. And I'll just say anyone who wants to learn about it, go to a website, Get Health, and health is spelled H-L-T-H, gethealth.com. In fact, if you want 10% off, enter Genius Life in the coupon code. (laughs) Love
0: that. But that's the first time I've ever heard that. Is it like so that fat can be anabolic?
1: Oh, yeah, For well, muscle? Yeah, well I, I wouldn't say – yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I would say it may be contingent on the fact that it's coming with protein. Wow. However, having said that, there are studies to show that just omega-3 fats alone can improve muscle protein synthesis. And that's those were studies that were not done linking it or stacking it with protein. That's amazing. So yes, there's something very – well, I guess magical or almost – um, it's just the way it's designed for human nutrition our best protein sources dairy meat and eggs all come with fat and that's not an accident uh, it, it really is I think reflective of just human needs, human physiology, biochemistry and the fact that and I think we should we should take that we should look at that as As a a basis or a justification for how we eat. And for those of us that are, I'm middle aged, I want to do everything I can to keep my muscle. A protein alone, like just pure whey protein, why am I going to waste my time on that? It's just, it's not going to have the same effect. It's not going to satiate me. You know, I'm going to be hungrier sooner. I'm going to take it the way God intended. I'm going to get my protein with some fat, and that's how I'll recover or that's how I'm going to eat.
0: That's awesome. Super cool. Well, Dr. Bickman, I want to, you know, just thank you for your time. Um, I, honestly, I feel like we could have gone for another two to three hours. <laughs> yeah. you know, just like we're gonna have to have like a round two, I think. If oh, you're, love it. if you're love open it. to it. Yeah. Um, But uh, where can people pick up your book and where can they find you on social media before I get to the last question that gets asked to everybody that's on the show?
1: Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again, Max, for the invitation. So the book um, is Why We Get Sick. You uh, you Buy it anywhere books are sold, Um, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, all of them. Um, And it really is just a book about insulin resistance, The this epidemic that no one's ever heard of. You know, no one appreciates insulin resistance. I want it to be on people's minds and lips. Um, uh, and, and people know why it's relevant, um, how you get it and then indeed what to do about it. And so by way of websites, um, I am active on social media, and that is totally to just share research. It is not pictures of me doing stupid things or uh, what I'm eating. Even it's just the just science relevant to human metabolism. And you can find me at Ben Bickman PhD on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And Bickman is just B-I-K-M-A-N. And then I'll start providing more and more content, including eBooks and blog contents, uh, content on the Get Health website. Again, that's Get and HLTH.com.
0: Love it. What does it mean to you to live a genius life?
1: Oh, that's a great question. To me, a genius life would be remembering what matters most and ensuring that my priorities are set. And so to take that literally, it would be to make sure that my role as husband and father is absolutely number one and everything else I do in life is it, it needs to somehow play feedback into that role that I am magnifying that role or making it uh, – I'm doing as, as well as I can, being the best husband, most committed, devoted husband I can and the best, most committed, devoted father in, in prioritizing the rearing of my children with a woman that I've committed my life to. That is my version of a genius life.
0: I love that. So wholesome. A family man. I'm a. Absolutely. I'm very close to my family as well, so I can appreciate that. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Thank you again. This was, this was you know eye-opening in many ways. Um, and uh, yeah, to all you guys out there on podcast land, thank you so much for tuning in. As always, share this episode of the show. Highlight your favorite quote from Dr. Bickman or I. Tag us both. We would very much appreciate that. Text me to let me know what you thought about this episode or, for, or if you have any follow-up questions. 310-299-9401 is my number, and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace, guys.